afternoon, and welcome to Outer Cape News on WOMR. My name is Matthew Dunn. This is your update on what's happening on the Lower and Outer Cape, drawing on stories reported in the pages of the Provincetown Independent, the Provincetown Banner, the Cape Codder, the Cape Cod Chronicle, and the Cape Cod Times. Town meeting and town election season continues, and Beth and I review results and look forward to upcoming action. Weather Will is here with your exclusive WOMR Weekend Weather Outlook, and Ira Wood has a toast to the Savior of Mothers. Eric Borg and Austin Miller were both elected to the Provincetown Select Board at the town's annual election on May 9th. They will replace Bobby Anthony and Louise Venden, each of whom decided not to seek another three-year term on the board. A co-owner of the Provincetown Brewing Company, Borg has served on the Visitor Services Board and the Zoning Board of Appeals. Miller works in finance and served on both of Provincetown's housing committees. Borg won 72% of the total votes cast, while Miller won votes from 65% of the 933 people who voted. Because two seats were up for election at the same time, voters could choose two candidates from among the four who were running. Austin Knight came in third with 299 votes, and Gordon Siegel got 128. 27% of Provincetown's 3,502 registered voters turned out for the election, down a bit from recent years. In the 2019 and 2020 elections, the turnout was just over 30%, while in the hotly contested 2021 race between Leslie Sandberg, Oriana Conklin, and Lise King, turnout was 42% of the electorate. The 2022 election for select board was uncontested, and only 19% of Provincetown's voters cast a ballot that year. The town's two override questions, each of which passed overwhelmingly at town meeting, also cleared the majority vote requirement at the ballot on Tuesday. Question 1, which authorized $1.7 million for a water line replacement project at McMillan Pier, passed with 74% of the vote. Question 2, which authorized a permanent expansion of the budget to pay for nine full-time positions in the town's fire and emergency medical services department, also passed with 79% of the vote. Provincetown will begin hiring for those positions while Lower Cape Ambulance Association, which has provided emergency services to the town for 86 years, will continue to provide ambulance services for another three years. In Truro, voters approved a measure to allow the town to start assessing additional real estate and personal property taxes to increase the staffing of the town's fire and rescue department. The money will allow the town to hire four full-time firefighter paramedics and one full-time emergency services administrator. The override measure also passed at the April 25th annual town meeting and can therefore now take effect. Similar to in Provincetown, the Truro election drew a turnout of about 27%, according to the town clerk's office. Two proposals that passed at Truro's town meeting failed to pass at the ballot box. 
A community sustainability proposal received a tie vote of 291 in favor and 291 against, while an override request for a housing coordinator also did not pass and will not take effect. As a write-in candidate, Paul Wazotsky was elected town moderator for three years with 362 votes. At last Saturday's town meeting in East Ham, voters approved all but the last article on the warrant, voting 66 to 172 to reject a ban on single-use disposable plastic food containers and utensils. Voters approved the first six warrant articles with little discussion, including the town's operating budget, borrowing for wastewater engineering and design, and borrowing for Rock Harbor dredging. The two borrowing measures are subject to Proposition 2.5 ballot questions on May 16th. The pace slowed at town meeting as voters discussed the first of eight zoning updates. Included in the proposals by the East Ham Task Force on residential zoning were changes to bylaw definitions, clear-cutting regulation, residential lot intensity, protection of perimeter vegetation, and site plan review standards. All were approved by voters. The failed plastics reduction article went before voters without the support of the select board, which voted unanimously not to recommend it. Board member Amy Ekman said that the petitioner made no effort to engage East Ham's business community, and the bylaw as presented may have been too comprehensive by eliminating biodegradable and compostable plastics as well. However, Ekman said the board would be supportive of any effort to reduce plastics in an inclusive manner. Local business owners also lobbied against the ban. Following the meeting, the original petitioner said he would bring the proposal before voters again next year, acknowledging that the lack of stakeholder engagement was a likely reason the article failed. East Ham's election takes place on Tuesday. The ballot includes an override to pay for collective bargaining agreements with town employees and school budget expenses, as well as debt exclusions to pay for Rock Harbor dredging and the design and engineering of a wastewater system. The polls will be open from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. May 16th at the Town Hall on Route 6. Three candidates will vie for two open positions on the elementary school committee, Monica Montoyo-Quintero, Devin O'Rourke, and Deborah Raymond are all seeking the three-year terms. Current committee members Judy Lindahl and Aaron Ellis are not seeking re-election. An override to fund the collective bargaining agreements and school budget expenses covers employees in the police, fire, dispatch, public works, and administrative departments. A debt exclusion of $1.8 million would pay for the maintenance dredging of Rock Harbor. Dredging is required every 8 to 10 years, and Rock Harbor was last dredged in 2017. A third ballot question asks East Ham voters to exempt almost $6 million from Proposition 2.5 taxation limits for the planning, design, engineering, and permitting of the town wastewater system. If the measure is approved, it's expected the request won't add to the tax rate because it will be paid from short-term rental revenue. Should the overrides pass at town election, the impact will be a 10% increase in property taxes, with the median property taxpayer paying just under $5,000, according to the warrant. 
The median-priced home in East Ham is $660,000. The Christmas tree shops filed for bankruptcy protection on Friday. The company filed for a Chapter 11 petition on Friday in Delaware Bankruptcy Court, claiming in a statement that the move is simply about financial restructuring. Greg Belzikian, son of former owners Charles and Doreen Belzikian, said the retail environment has changed dramatically from when the store was growing years ago. Belzikian said seeking bankruptcy protection is something that the current owners needed to do to ensure the success of the company. Ten of the 82 Christmas tree shops locations across the country are set to close, according to the statement including the thatched roof store at the foot of the Sagamore Bridge. The Bourne and Falmouth outlets are among the other planned closures. Christmas Tree Shops also has locations on Cape Cod, in Hyannis, West Dennis, and Orleans. Other stores on the list to be closed are New York, Pennsylvania, Virginia, Michigan, Georgia, and Florida. Chairman Mark Salkovitz said in the statement that he's confident the business will emerge from bankruptcy, better positioned to grow and prosper into the future. Mark and Alice Matthews opened the original Christmas tree gift shop in Yarmouthport in the 1950s. In 1970, Charles and Doreen Belzikian bought the store and expanded over the next three decades, opening 24 additional locations across New England and New York. In 2003, Bed Bath & Beyond bought and expanded the franchise to 20 states. In November 2020, it sold the company to Middleborough-based Handel Holdings. The Belzikian family still owns the property for the Christmas Tree Shop store branches in Falmouth, Sagamore, and Orleans. Cape Cod residents and visitors breathed a collective sigh of relief yesterday as the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers delivered the news that the Sagamore Bridge maintenance work is now complete. The work that began in late March and that has caused daily traffic backups and frustrations among commuters is finishing up two weeks ahead of schedule. The contractor completed the paving portion of the project Thursday morning. Work included repairs to both the east side roadway lanes and the bridge's sidewalk. Contractors were finishing up work on Thursday, but removed the lane restrictions and put down temporary line striping on the bridge. All travel lanes are now open. The contractor will come back over the weekend at night to install permanent line striping, remove all the temporary road signage, and reopen the sidewalk to pedestrians and cyclists. Bourne Town Administrator Marlene McCollum said the town is using the experience to talk with construction officials about what can be done differently and better as they look toward undertaking similar maintenance on the Bourne Bridge in the fall. There is no specific date yet for the Bourne Bridge work to start, but McCollum said it will be sometime after Labor Day. For Outer Cape News, this is Beth Dunn. Affordable housing articles led the Orleans Town meeting Monday night as more than 400 taxpayers packed the Nauset Regional Middle School gym. In three and a half hours, voters took care of 66 regular town meeting articles and nine special town meeting articles. 
The town budget, including the education budget, passed with no discussion. A debt exclusion article asking to fund a new fire department aerial truck also passed unanimously. The approval of $180,000 to fund a feasibility study for the design and construction of a new snow library passed, 246 to 158, with no discussion. A request for $110,000 to rehabilitate Veterans Memorial Park on the Village Green was initially defeated on a three-fourths vote of 337 to 119 after resident Bruce Taub objected because of what he said was a lack of recognition of Native Americans who lived on the land first. The article's defeat promised to throw another hurdle into plans to restore the aging park, which have been in the works for nine years. But a motion to reconsider the vote with amended language was accepted, and the vote passed by the necessary three-quarters majority. Alyssa Magnata and Chris Kanaga, members of the Finance Committee, made the motion to reconsider. The motion revised the article to include language to recognize the sacrifices of Native peoples who lived on the land that now comprises Orleans, as well as the veterans of our town. The revised language also makes mention of plans for a plaque recognizing Native peoples as part of efforts to restore the park. A request for $450,000 to complete permitting and cover the town's 25% share of construction of a Pilgrim Lake fish ladder passed. The project would allow the passage of thousands of herring and eels to the lake each year. The town is seeking a grant from the Federal Natural Resources Conservation Service to cover 100% of the design and 75% of the total cost of $1.6 million. Orleans voters passed an article authorizing the town to dispose of the former Governor Prince Inn property on Route 6A. With the vote, the town can begin the process of preparing a request for proposals for developers interested in bringing affordable and workforce housing to the property. A zoning bylaw change to encourage housing in the Central Business District by reducing the required lot size for one or two family houses was approved. The change would increase housing in that district by 69 parcels, according to Planning Board member Alice Thomason Van Oot. A bylaw amendment to add registration of all rental properties drew some objections, but defense of it came from Finance Committee member Elaine Baird and Select Board member Mark Matheson. The article passed 246 to 155. All other housing bylaw changes were approved. Several water resource and sewer projects also passed with no dissent. Voters approved a total of $1.37 million in Community Preservation Act funding. That includes money to renovate the exterior of the Academy Playhouse and a historic restoration of the town bandstand at Nauset Beach. Eleven questions at the May 16th town election in Orleans are Proposition 2.5 overrides or debt exclusions, including the Veterans Memorial Park rehabilitation, the aerial ladder truck for the fire department, and the permitting and reconstruction of the Pilgrim Lake Fish Ladder Rehabilitation Project. The Proposition 2.5 proposals must pass both town meeting and at the town election to take effect. 
Other Proposition 2.5 override questions concern a Rock Harbor dredging project and building a Meeting House Pond area collection system and pumping station project and the downtown area sewer collection system. Voters will also be asked whether the town should, for fiscal 24, assess an additional real estate and personal property taxes to fund the town's share of Cape Cod Regional Technical High School and Nauset Regional School District assessments. A race for two Board of Health seats is the only contested race in Orleans. Incumbents John Kanaga and Sims McGrath are seeking another three-year term, while challenger Robert E. Gwynn is also vying for a seat. Voting will take place at the Senior Center on Rock Harbor Road from 9 a.m. to 7 p.m. on Tuesday. The last day of early voting is today, May 12th, from 8.30 to 4.30 in the town clerk's office in Town Hall. The prospect of building a new center for active living on Main Street in West Chatham was kept alive Thursday with the approval of a debt exclusion ballot question in the annual town election. Question 1, which exempted borrowing for the proposed facility from Proposition 2.5, was approved 624 to 481. An article appropriating $10.6 million for the center failed to pass by the required two-thirds majority at Saturday's annual town meeting, failing by one vote, not once, but twice. Officials said this week that passage of the debt exclusion ballot question means that the proposal could be brought back to a special town meeting and win approval, provided it receives a two-thirds majority vote. The ballot question only required a majority to pass. Proponents of the senior facility, which also failed to win a two-thirds majority in 2021, have suggested that it could be re-voted at a fall special town meeting. There were no contested races on the ballot, and two other debt exclusions passed handily. 19% of Chatham's registered voters cast ballots, according to town clerk Julie Smith. Select board member Shireen Davis was returned to office for another three-year term, while incumbents Jacqueline Zibret Long and Elizabeth Gray will each serve three-year terms on the Monomoy Regional School District School Committee. Along with approving operating budgets and capital spending, Voters at Saturday's annual town meeting in Chatham agreed to dedicate two town-owned parcels to affordable housing, approximately two acres between Stepping Stones Road and the bike trail, which the Monomoy Regional School Committee declared surplus and turned over to the town, met the two-thirds threshold to be repurposed for housing. Reusing the structures on Old Harbor Road for housing drew more debate, with several people questioning whether the change would honor the wishes of Marion Nickerson Ellis, who bequeathed the land to the town in 1971 for a playground. The article passed 398 to 142. Also approved were $300,000 for dredging, $100,000 to continue the town's child care voucher program, $180,000 to replenish the Dr. Florence Selden Preschool Family Support Program, and a petition to the state legislature to grant an additional year-round all-alcohol license for Pate's Restaurant. 
Brewster's annual town election takes place on Tuesday, May 16th, with polls open at Brewster Baptist Church on Main Street from 7 a.m. to 8 p.m. The only contested race on that ballot is for the select board. There are three candidates seeking a three-year term on the select board, including incumbent select board member Edward Chatelaine. He is challenged by Carol Anderson and Laurel Labden. Voters in Brewster will be asked for property tax overrides as well. Among the top considerations are override questions asking to support education budgets. The school budget overrides were approved at the May 1st annual town meeting, but they must be approved at the polls to take effect. Overrides for the Stony Brook and Eddy Elementary School budgets are necessary because of significant increases in special education expenses and supporting greater social and emotional needs among students. Overrides for the Stony Brook and Eddy Elementary School budgets are necessary because of significant increases in special education expenses, transportation, and utilities, school officials said. For the regional district, increased costs associated with school choice and charter school tuitions were also cited. The annual town election in Harwich also has just one contested race on the ballot for Tuesday. Three candidates are running for two select board seats. Incumbent Donald Howell is running for another three-year term, joined by two challengers, vice chairman for the town's local planning committee, Jeffrey Handler, and former select board member, Peter Pikarski. Howell said he served on the board from 2000 to 2006, was elected again in 2017, and that he has 30 years of civic experience, including as a planning board member. Howell resigned from the Affordable Housing Trust earlier this year after Selectman Chairman Michael McCaskill made a motion to remove him from the trust. McCaskill said a rift had developed between Howell and Town Administrator Joseph Powers. Howell said he thinks he has a valuable voice because he doesn't always agree with everyone. Handler last ran in 2021 and lost by about 30 votes. Calling affordable housing one of the town's biggest challenges, Handler said he would like to see the town pursue a public-private partnership to create housing on the town-owned Marceline property. Pikarski could not be reached for comment. Voters in Harwich will have three ballot questions to consider. One Proposition 2.5 Debt Exclusion question asks voters if the town should approve funding to pay for the bond issued for the design, permitting, and construction of a dry sewer pipe along Route 28. Another asks if the town should approve funding to pay $50 million to expand the wastewater collection system in East Harwich. Voters will also be asked to approve a 2022 town meeting vote to amend the town charter to change references of Board of Selectmen and Chairman to Select Board and Chair to delete references to gender. For Outer Cape News, my name is Matthew Dunn. This is meteorologist Will David with your weekly weather watch and temperature trend for the Outer Cape. A very mild air mass for mid-May continues to envelop the region as temperatures once again climb into the 70s this afternoon. An approaching upper level disturbance has already triggered a few showers 
and may also spawn an isolated thunderstorm this afternoon and evening. But as the disturbance moves out to sea, high pressure will provide abundant sunshine and a magnificent Mother's Day weekend. Saturday should be the warmer of the two weekend days, but Sunday may end up being the sunniest from beginning to end. Although a reinforcing northwest airflow on Sunday will bring cooler, more seasonal air to the Outer Cape. Now, this stretch of fair weather should extend into the early part of the work week with moderating temperatures, but by Tuesday and Wednesday, a pattern change and a developing upper-level trough should send another front our way with scattered showers and cooler air. And this developing pattern, which is much more common at this time of the year, will likely dominate in the longer term. However, I see no big storms, no washouts, and no extreme heat or chill in the long term. But remember, it's not the heat that burns or tans, it's the UV. And I know this is probably hard to believe because it's not even Memorial Day weekend, the unofficial beginning of summer, but the Mother's Day sun or May 14th sun is equivalent in strength to the sun on July 31st. Elsewhere across the nation, the big story this weekend will be a heat wave over the western third of the country. And this will have the same characteristics as the June 2021 event that sent temperatures soaring to all-time highs over western Canada and the Pacific Northwest. This year, the calendar says May, so the heat may be tempered ever so slightly, but all-time records will likely be challenged from California and Arizona north to the western provinces of Canada. And this dome of record heat, combined with an ongoing drought, is creating intense early season wildfires across western Canada, and plumes of this high-altitude smoke may once again produce colorful sunrises and sunsets, but lower the air quality from the Great Lakes to the Mid-Atlantic. The middle of the country will see a continuing threat for severe storms and tornadoes, as heavy rain and flooding pummels areas from West Texas to the Southeast. And finally, it's not just the Western heat. Southeast Asia is in the grips of one of the most intense heat waves ever, with all time high temperatures posing a dangerous threat. Both Vietnam and Laos have seen the mercury soar to 113 degrees as this heat dome expands and grips Cambodia, Thailand, and even parts of Western China. It's usually very difficult for these kinds of temperatures to be achieved because of the normally high humidity in these areas. A more humid air mass is more resistant to both warming and cooling, but the fact that so many records have been obliterated is a testament to the historic nature of this air mass and the implications of climate change. And here's a fact, the past eight years have been the eight warmest years globally on record. Now my exclusive WOMR weekend weather forecast for the Outer Cape. This afternoon, partly sunny and warm with a passing shower or thunderstorm. Highs around 73. Tonight, a slight chance of evening showers or maybe an isolated storm, otherwise partly cloudy. Lows around 58. Saturday, partly to mostly sunny and continued warm. Highs around 72. Mother's Day, bright sunshine and more seasonal. Highs around 63. As always, stay safe and informed by keeping an eye to the sky and an ear to the radio. Have a wonderful weekend, everybody, and happy Mother's Day. I'm Weather Will.
With the arrival of Mother's Day, it's hard to escape the traditional topics. Family, flower bouquets, Sunday brunch. But since every media outlet in the country has that stuff covered, including heartfelt stories about the sacrifices of mom herself, I thought we might turn our attention to a person that nobody will be talking about. Ignaz Semmelweis. Who? Ignaz Semmelweis, an obscure Hungarian physician who died in an insane asylum but was known as the savior of mothers. During the mid-19th century, Semmelweis practiced medicine at Vienna General Hospital, the most renowned medical institution in all of Europe. He had applied to work in the fields of pathology and surgery, but because he was from Budapest, considered a rebellious province, and he was of the Jewish faith, he was relegated to obstetrics, considered an unimportant field of medicine. Childbirth in the 19th century was a life-threatening procedure, as infections then known as childbed fever took the lives of 5 to 10 percent of women giving birth. As an assistant in the hospital's maternity division, Semmelweis oversaw two clinics, both of which serviced the city's poorest women. Over time, he was disturbed by a terrifying discrepancy. Compared with clinic number two, clinic number one had a much higher rate of maternal death. Not that this was any secret. Pregnant women would beg, cajole, or try to bribe their way into clinic number two. Some women even preferred to give birth in the street, reasoning that it was safer than the chances of dying in clinic number one. Semmelweis became obsessed with the mystery. How could one clinic, side by side with another and nearly identical, be so much more lethal? It wasn't overcrowding or the women's ages, or bad air, which back then was thought to carry disease, over time he ruled out every cause he could think of. But by chance one day, a colleague of his, a surgeon, fell seriously ill after being accidentally cut by a surgical tool while performing an autopsy. As his symptoms worsened, Semmelweis noticed that they mirrored the symptoms of the mothers infected by childbed fever, and suddenly the answer hit him. Clinic number one was staffed by surgeons who routinely moved between the pathology department and the maternity ward, going back and forth between the autopsies and delivering babies. Clinic number two, by contrast, was staffed solely by midwives who had no contact with cadavers and never performed dissections. Semmelweis wondered, could the sickness be caused by blood or fluids or particles transported from the corpses to the women in labor? Back then, the existence of germs invisible to the eye was just an outlying hunch. Various doctors over the years had bemoaned what they called the morbid poison and is now known as the bacteria called Group A hemolytic streptococcus. But at the time, it was just an unfortunate problem, one for which 
Semmelweis devised a simple solution. He ordered all doctors to wash their hands with chlorine and water before entering the maternity wards. The results were astonishing. The mortality rate in clinic number one declined by 90%, but the doctors were furious at being ordered to wash their hands and even more so for the insinuation that they were to blame. The more they protested, the more enraged Semmelweis became, writing accusatory letters to doctors all over Europe, implying that childbed fever was a physician-induced disease. In due course, Semmelweis was fired, had to take a lowly position back in Budapest, and suffered a mental breakdown that worried his family enough to have him admitted to an insane asylum. Violently protesting his confinement, he was beaten by guards, leaving him with broken bones and a severely infected foot. In a tragic irony of history, Semmelweis died soon after, likely from sepsis, the very same condition he tried so hard to prevent. Ignat Semmelweis never received the recognition awarded Joseph Lister or Louis Pasteur, later pioneers of antiseptic treatments, but that didn't matter to the many women he saved from certain death. So, as we honor our own moms at brunch this weekend, let's raise a mimosa to Ignat Semmelweis, the savior of mothers. I'm Ira Wood, and that's my opinion. And that does it for this week's edition of Outer Cape News. Thanks go to the Provincetown Independent, the Provincetown Banner, the Cape Codder, the Cape Cod Chronicle, and the Cape Cod Times. Thanks also to Beth Dunn, Will David, and Ira Wood for their contributions to the program. And thanks to Henry and Jane Fisher and Jacob Greenberg for being sustaining members of Outer Cape News. Now stay tuned for Friday Afternoon Jazz. It's Stirred Not Shaken with Hank and Andy on listener-supported community radio. WOMR. Your